the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. You can hear the program each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. It is 4.02 on the Tim DeMoss Show. It's AM 560 WFIL. Thank you for listening in this afternoon. Forecast today getting cloudy, low down to 66. Cloudy early tomorrow. Some sunshine off and on during the day. Maybe a shower or two. Humid. High of 82. Thursday looks like uh, clouds and a few showers and thunder showers. Since my daughter's soccer practice will be off. 75 the high for Thursday. Flyers 1-1-0 on this young season are home tonight. Their home opener against San Jose 1-2-0. Flyers will be out uh, without James Van Riemsdyk, their big free agent signing in the offseason. He was injured in the Flyers' most recent game over the weekend. Looks to be out up to six weeks. Major League Baseball playoffs, Houston beat Cleveland yesterday, and the Dodgers beat the Braves, so both Houston and the Dodgers move on. Tonight, the Red Sox and Yankees, 8-0-7 first pitch. Red Sox are one win away from advancing to the next round after smoking the Yankees. I think it was 16-1 last night, real nail-biter. Also last night, kind of neat, whether you're a big sports fan or not, Drew Brees of the New Orleans Saints became the NFL's all-time leading career passing yards leader. Uh, almost 72,000 yards passing Peyton Manning. Uh, Breeze is a neat story. Not a big guy by football standards, just six feet tall, barely recruited out of high school, not a splashy uh, first-round draft pick, almost had his career ended with an injury early on. Now 39 years old, the quarterback with the most passing yards in the history of the game. And it was kind of neat to hear him. Uh, there's a sideline microphone at the game picking up Breeze talking to his young sons saying you can accomplish anything in life you're willing to work for, right? That's a, that's a great example, great model there. Breeze gives a lot, gave a lot of credit to everybody around him, which is also good in terms of humility, uh, his family and teammates, and even more importantly, as Breeze himself would probably say, that his team won last night. So uh, that was last night. Don't forget, if I have my facts straight, which is not always the case, today, the last day to register to vote in Pennsylvania for the upcoming election in early November this Friday, I believe it is, the deadline for Delaware, and next week, the Tuesday, the 16th, the deadline for Jersey. I'd heard about that actually a couple of weeks ago and then forgot and then remembered yesterday, like, oh, did I miss it? Because our son turned 18 over the summer and wanted to remind him, hey, you, you know, this is a privilege. You should get, get out there and register and, and be ready to vote. And I remember being 18 many moons ago, and a neat feeling it was to realize I was actually indeed old enough to officially have a say in things. So in any case, uh, keep an eye on that if that applies to you. also want to just encourage you with something um, just to let you know about. WFIL, of course, has been around for many years. We have a lot of different programs that are hopefully a blessing to you. And we would like to invite you to share your story with us. It's very simple. You take out a smartphone or a mobile device, preferably your own, and record a brief message how WFIL has made a direct and positive impact on your life. It may be a timely word of encouragement you heard while listening to a program on the station, maybe a message that challenged you when you walk with the Lord, maybe just won a prize and found that to be you know, a lot of fun, brightened up your day. Whatever it might be, just go to WFIL.com, enter the keyword story, get all the details and contest rules. And I say contest rules because as a thank you, 
for taking time to share your story. You'll be entered to win an Apple iPad Pro and an Apple Pencil. And to clarify, you don't have to have a dramatic story or something amazing or a great video, quality video, just for taking the time. You'll be automatically entered for that. So check it out, WFIL.com. Enter the keyword story and share your story with WFIL. We're going to take a very brief break, and we have a couple of in-studio guests. I'm looking forward to introducing you to. It's Tim DeMoss Show on AM560, WFIL. Have a guest you'd like to hear on the Tim DeMoss Show on AM560, WFIL? Email Timmy D at WFIL.com. You're listening to AM560, WFIL, Tim DeMoss, the Tim DeMoss Show, 409. We shift our attention now to a couple of special in-studio guests. David Peterson lives in Montgomery County, originally from Detroit. His wife, Andre, works for uh, World Magazine, among other things. Andre Peterson, Andre, how do you say it? Andre Sue Peterson. Sue Peterson. Yeah. You're one of those. got the double name going. Yeah, <laughs> long story there. <laughs> you a tennis player? They have the, this. Those are good for the... <laughs> Billie Jean, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys are local and have a great story to tell. And so I want to encourage people in their faith with what God has been at work in in, in your lives, uh, individually, collectively, uh, with a focus on David and your your how God has delivered you from uh, some serious drug addiction and, and challenges in your life. So I'm aware of some of the, your story, but I want to learn as you're talking, too. Okay. <laughs> so you can start wherever, whatever is a good point. You know, even just growing up, did you grow up? You know, going to church or knowing anything about the Lord and and where yeah. to from there. How much time are we? As much, just you just talk. Don't worry about the time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I did actually. Uh, grew up in the church, okay. Baptist, raised Baptist, raised in a fairly conservative Christian home. From the outside, you would think that all was well, but in fact, there was something missing. Even as a young child. Even in my church experience, I accepted the Lord formally, I guess you could say, uh, at 10 years old. But even before that, I, I'd always believed as long as I, I had known the name of Jesus, I believed in, in Jesus. So I can't pinpoint a, a particular time when I was saved per se, but I did go forward at 10 years old. But that church experience... As good as it was in grounding me in uh, things biblical, was missing something. And I, I guess it was a really vital personal relationship with Jesus. Hmm. And so maybe from the age of 13 or 14, my interests started turning elsewhere from, you know, youth group activities and that kind of thing to things more, oh, you might say transcendental or spiritual outside of or beyond the, the Christian experience. Like spiritually, just looking for other ways to satisfy, you know, your yes. spiritual curiosity yeah. or what the meaning of life was? Or? There was an, I, I had an emptiness, Tim, inside me that I was acutely aware of I didn't know how to describe it or really what it was, but I just felt like uh, this was the 60s, and there was a, a kind of a an emphasis on materialism, at least in the area that I grew up in. It, it was kind of affluent and up and coming. So a lot of the the goals or the aspirations were material, and that just didn't appeal to me. Hmm. For whatever reason, and I think it was a God-given reason, 
that the things of the world just weren't attractive. They, I shouldn't say they weren't attractive. There were certain things that I had a, a love of in the world, cars and this kind of thing, but there was a, a kind of emptiness, something missing that I was very much aware of. And so I looked into Eastern religions, philosophy, transcendental meditation, uh, Buddhism, a, a number of things. This in your teenage this years? This is teenage or? years, yes. Wow. That's yeah. a lot for a teenager to be, you know, already searching in those directions. That's quite a bit. Yes, yeah. it was. It was something that not many of my friends had interest in. Okay. But for me, I would just... I guess a, a seeker, but looking for something that would satisfy, something that would fill me, hmm. that would make my existence have meaning or purpose. Now, I believed in God. I didn't necessarily connect this longing with not being... Properly in, connected. In, so. Right. Yeah. In, in a right relationship with God. Interesting. Um, so I would, you know, pray, usually in times of peril or uh, distress or whatever, but I didn't look to God to fill that emptiness, that missing component in my life. Did you have anybody in your life uh, at, at, at that time that was maybe trying to point in that direction? Because some of the story could be, where was everybody? <laughs> or if you, you know what I mean? It, yes. It's a wake-up call. That's People a, don't assume everyone's, you know, doing fine. Maybe speak up periodically. That's right. That's a good point. And no, there really wasn't. Uh, our youth group was run by an older gentleman mm -hmm. that really had no, no connection with. Hmm. And there really wasn't much outreach. I don't want to blame the church, but I would say that for what was happening in the culture at that time, the sexual revolution and the drug revolution and the explosion of, of alternative lifestyles and alternative religions, the church really wasn't equipped at that time, talking mid yeah. to late 60s now. Were you still going to youth group even as you were exploring all the other things too? Yeah, it's about the time that I dropped out of youth group. Okay. Yeah, maybe around 13, 14 years old. Chatting with David Peterson and his wife, Andre Sue Peterson, and uh, they're friends of ours, local in the area, and David has an amazing testimony. So is Andre, too, which we'll share another time, perhaps, or maybe we'll slip it in as sure we go. <laughs> but tell us what happened then. So after finding none of those things were not filling your life either, what happened? I guess yes. as you move into your 20s and beyond, what happened Yeah, next? okay. Well, to get up to the 20s, I, I got to go and... Uh, fast motion here, but I have to kind of conclude with the years of my, my early teens. Uh, at the time I was 15, so we're talking late 60s now, yeah. I became aware or introduced to the drug scene that was happening all around everyone in, in the 60s. Mm. And this seemed to me like maybe the thing that I was missing. Wow. I remember reading a it was either a Life magazine or Look or one of those old magazines back in the day that had an article on LSD and the person being interviewed in it, a drug user, said, I, I took this little pill and saw God. And so wow. I thought, wow, how easy could that be? Instead of the disciplines at the time that I'm looking at, which was Buddhism and 
and transcendental meditation and other things that really were a discipline and you had to put your whole self into it and here was you know an alternative where you could just drop a pill and be in the presence of of god so this really excited me i bet a lot of people if that if that was happening today they would be like because i think underneath there is that hunger right yes People, if you yep. told the average person you could take this pill and no. Yes. Well, they might not. There's also that part of it I'm afraid of what I might find out. But there's still that, really, I could? Yes. So that spoke to you that, wow, that's quite a thing. Yeah, and, and there was a something in the air at that time, and Andre can attest to that. She has her own story about those times. Uh, there was something different, something in the atmosphere that was kind of breaking forth Maybe it was me coming of age, but it seems like beyond my own personal experience, it was a collective thing. Culturally speaking, yes. where things were going. Yes. People were becoming open to all kinds of stuff that really had never been much considered before. So mm-hmm. I fell into that. and As a teenager. As a teenager. And so by the time I'm 15 turning 16, I had discovered heroin which was beyond all the other drugs that I had experimented with. It was the drug that best satisfied that missing component in my life. It created in me a, a feeling of well-being, uh, euphoria, uh, feeling of confidence, and just knowing that nothing can harm me. I felt totally good and comfortable and most like what I imagined my true self to be. I felt comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. And this grew into, very rapidly, a, a kind of love affair with the drug. Before long, um, the years from you know, 15, 16, going up into my 20s, it became an obsession, my drug use. Mm. Thanks for tuning in to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast with AM560 WFIL and WFIL.com. 422 AM560 WFIL is what you're listening to. It's the Tim DeMoss Show. Thank you for tuning in. Our guest, David Peterson and Andre Sue Peterson. Andre, a columnist, actually, for World Magazine. We'll chat about that at some point. But for now, David is sharing about his search for God, his battle with drugs as a teenager in his mid-teens, late teens. What was going on at this time? Were you working as well, or what were you up to? Yeah, well, uh, high school and squeaked through, through that. Um, and then, yeah, odd jobs. Uh, the drugs becomes the thing. Yes. Like that's your, not your job, but that's where your brain's at. That's right. Yeah. In order to do anything else... In order to work a job, I was working at 18, I, I got a job at Chrysler and from Detroit, so I, I had a, a lot of opportunity with the auto industry at that time and got a job first with Chrysler. That brought in some pretty good money for an 18-year-old kid, and yet all the money went to one thing other than my basic living needs. Yeah. Um, so I was still in high school when I, when I got that job. And my whole income, uh, 80% of it, went to just maintaining my drug habit. It was intertwined with my life in a way that is really hard to explain because it's without the drug, I couldn't work. You become 
incapable of functioning, literally. And so at first, the drug makes you feel good and, and euphoric and all of that. But at, in time, it just serves to kind of get you to a state of being normal so that I can function. It gets you functional. Yeah. Without it, there is no, no doing anything else except yeah. laying around sick. And so that becomes the goal of the day before anything else. That's your number one priority. Secure some drugs for the day, hopefully for the week, but that generally wouldn't happen. Once that was taken care of, then I could go into the rest of the day and do my normal routine. And if it took a half hour to do that, then I had most of the day. But if it took six hours to get up the money and get the drugs... That's what I would do. I had to do. So there was a lot of calling in late for work and jumping from job to job, finding jobs that were more accommodating to my lifestyle. I was working in restaurants at this point. Did you realize as it's happening that this is not what I started off mean, you know, meaning for this to be? Yes. In fact, I realized that quite early on. But at that point, it was almost too late. Because of an overdose, which was suspected to be a, an attempt at suicide, I was put into a, an institution for a while. How old were you, Ben? What do you call it? Uh, this was, 20? yeah, I was 20, 21. Wow. And so they did an evaluation for two weeks, as it turned out. But at the time that I was admitted. I, I didn't know how long I would be in there, and no one else did either. And after two weeks of probing and prodding on the psychiatric side of things, the psychiatrist said, David, we're going to release you, but I have to talk to you about your addiction. He said, in Western society, heroin is a real taboo this is something that is not accepted in your culture. The government is against it. You end up in prison for it. It is rejected by society. And he said, and yet, the fact is that now that you are an addict, he said, you will always be an addict. He said, there's no cure for this. And so what you need to do is become familiar with what you need, the minimum you need to maintain, and don't overdo it. Rather than the drug controlling you, you control your use. Now, this is, wow. to, by today's standards, you know, this, this is crazy. But this is what he told me. Essentially, you're doomed to a life sentence, and so you need, need to know how to maintain this addiction because you never get out of it. Wow. That's and that was the best thing that he had to offer. So I left there knowing that that wasn't true. Somehow, in my heart of hearts, I knew that, no, God could free me of this. I didn't know how, but I just knew that God was powerful enough to do that. Even though I wasn't serving God, I still believed in him, and I believed that he was sovereign and that he could do anything. So this was not so disturbing or depressive to me. Uh, depressing, but rather, I guess it caused me a, a kind of defiance. Hmm. 
and I, I made the, the inner vow, so to speak, that I will be the one who determines when I quit and when and if I use again. Now, I had withdrawn uh, during the time that I was locked up in this institution. Right. So I wasn't physically addicted at this point. Two weeks was enough to, to get over the, the withdrawal. But I was still psychologically, I was still addicted. And that's one of the most potent problems with drug addiction, cocaine or heroin or, or opioids. You can be free physically of the drug, but still be in bondage to it psychologically. Chat with David Peterson, who's uh, sharing his story of God's work in his life. And uh, in terms of drug addiction, from the, we've, we've heard about kind of now building up to, all right, now you're in your 20s, and what happened next? What was the next, next chapter? Well, the next chapter is composed of year after year after year of pretty much repeating the same cycle. Uh, run-ins with the law periods of incarceration, loss of jobs, loss of friends in some instances. And, and then there would be something that would come along in my life that would cause a, a rejection of this lifestyle. And it would be different things. I, uh, usually a person that presented something to me that was an alternative and and I would get clean for a while some months was able to rededicate myself to the Lord and uh, live as I had hoped to live but even when I was clean not using drugs for a period of oh three four six months I was still battling this psychological thing. For instance, I went to Bible school uh, in a period and got out of the Detroit area, went down to Texas. Even down there, while I'm going through these classes during the day and uh, devotions in the morning and going through the, the whole Christian style, interacting only with other Christians pretty much because that's who was on campus and teachers. And even during that time, I was still fighting this compulsion or obsession, maybe is a better word for it, where I couldn't stop thinking Hmm. about either reviewing what my drug experiences were like, kind of reliving the glory days, so to speak, or thinking about the future, like, is it possible I might be able to get some drugs? And eventually that's what happened. And it was a trap, really, of Satan. It was just a setup for me. I pulled in to turn around because I had passed the entrance to the Bible college I was at. I pulled into an apartment building to turn around to uh, go back. And I pulled up into a parking spot to do my turnaround, and right as I pulled up there, a guy came out of the door. He came out and walked right up to the car, and he said, what can I do for you? Hmm. He thought I was a drug customer, and this turned out to be a drug house. Without even thinking, I, I knew what it was when, when that happened. So wow. it was a total, a total trap. And before I really even realized what was going on, 
I was pulling money out of my wallet and paying them off for some, in that case, cocaine. And that sent me right back into this spiral downward and ended up uh, leaving the the Bible Institute yeah. without completion and uh, coming back to Detroit in just a kind of broken, defeated way again and back into my addiction. And So this was just repeated time and time again. Treatment, houses that I had gone through, counseling with psychologists, AA, NA, all these various means that I tried always... You know, they led to some short-term of sobriety, but I always ended up back where, where I'd been before. And all these years, you, like you mentioned, going to Bible school. So, uh, at least for that season, how roughly how old would you have been? Do you think that was mid '80s? So I would have been in yeah, sure. my 30s. 30s yeah. yeah. Okay. Four thirty-two. It's the Tim DeMoss Show. Just time for a quick break. Come back with David Peterson here on the Tim DeMoss Show, AM five sixty, WFIL. Live and local, it's the Tim DeMoss Show, weekday afternoons 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Our podcast continues. 435 on AM 560 WFIL, it's the Tim DeMoss Show. Thank you for listening. Forecast getting cloudy tonight, low 66. Tomorrow, cloudy early. Some sunshine off and on during the day. May get a shower or two. Humid. High 82. Flyers are home tonight. Their opener, uh, their home opener, I should say, against San Jose. Baseball playoffs, Red Sox and Yankees go at it tonight, 8.07. We are continuing our conversation. David Peterson and his wife, Andre Sue Peterson, in, in studio. They have quite a story. We hope you'll find encouraging and pointing you in the direction of the Lord. Uh, continuing on with David's search for God, his battle with drugs along the way. Uh, sometimes you hear people say you have to hit rock bottom before getting out of a bad situation. I'm not sure that has to be the case or that hitting rock bottom actually guarantees anything. But that said, after relapsing into the space you were just describing before the break, was there a bottom for you? Or Yeah, well, sometimes it's a matter of hitting the bottom and then just bouncing time and time and time again off, off the bottom without it really bringing about the, you know, the recovery that yeah. one typically hears of after somebody is bottomed out. I was at the bottom more times, literally more times than I could even recall at a loss of, of everything in my life, anything that was important at various degrees. Sometimes it was worse than others, but every time I was there, I felt like I was at the bottom. This was the end. And in that moment would swear that I'm done, I'm over, I'm through and sick and tired of being sick and tired. And yet, that wasn't enough. My willpower uh, was not enough to pull me out of the power that this addiction had on me. At its core, addiction is a, a spiritual dynamic that is operating the person's life, and it covers all the bases. It's not just work and relationships and family and friends. It's deeper than that. It's affects the way you think, the things you think about, the way you behave. For me, because addiction is something that you're always trying to hide from others, it developed in me a lying mentality. I lived in a, a way that was always 
Well, in darkness, so to speak, living in the shadows and never being in the clear light of day for others to see who the real me was. And so I perfected the art of lying, of covering up, of concealing and deceiving, and became a really repulsive person. What finally broke through? Was there a, a, any main thing that that there was shined a light, if you will, on? Yes. So uh, telling this testimony is difficult because there's so much to it, and I've skipped a lot. But I had married uh, back in the early '80s, so for 20 years I lived with my wife and four children, but. Because of my influence, my wife became an addict as well. And so we struggled together for decades, trying to hold a family together, four children, three actually at the time. My daughter was born later, but three boys driving around, trying to scam up money and go get the drugs with little kids in the back seat, going to the dope house, being in some of the worst neighborhoods in Detroit, it was just what I had to do to keep going. And at this point, what we had to do, the two of us. Yeah. But this lifestyle took a toll on our relationship. Sure. And after 20 years, she had finally had enough. She left me and went into a inpatient recovery house, got very involved with AA, and ended up getting sober and staying sober and divorcing me. This was late 90s now. Okay. And this was probably the most devastating thing that had happened to me up to that point. And I was extremely depressed and started using more and more, multiple times daily. And the addiction just became a, a mountain of weight on me. It eventually led to a point where I had run out of drugs and was really panicking because I knew what I was in store for. And I was having, I was living up in the UP of Michigan and having drugs mailed up, UPS, uh, up to the Upper Peninsula from Detroit every other day. Well, it turned out my connection. Uh, got arrested or something, and I couldn't get through to him. And so the the supply got cut off completely. And so I did a a crazy thing, something that I had thought about any number of times but never had the nerve to do it. But I decided the only way I'm going to get enough drugs to be okay for a while is to go where the drugs are, which was a pharmacy, and take them myself. And so I got a gun and didn't load it with bullets because I didn't want anyone to be hurt, didn't want any potential of someone being hurt. So I took all the drugs that I had left. I had a a small, well, a pretty good supply, but not enough to last for more than a couple days. And this is why the panic had set in. Mm. So I took all the rest of the drugs I had, which just put me pretty close to incoherent to give me enough nerve to do this. And went into a drugstore 
had the gun in a bag, a brown lunch bag, and walked up to the counter and just pulled the gun out. And I said, don't want to hurt anybody, but I need all of the narcotics that you have. The woman at the counter freaked out. And anyway, long story short, I ended up robbing them of their narcotic supply and didn't even bother to empty the till. I took no money or anything else, which I could have done. I'm there robbing a, a store. Why not at least yeah. take some cash too? But I didn't. I didn't care about that. I just was there for the drugs. That's what I needed. I filled up my little bag and uh, actually I had a, a larger plastic bag in my pocket. Filled that up with all the narcotics they had and exited. The next day I was arrested, but in the time between then, I was just beside myself with this pile of drugs, more than I had ever had in my life, um, sitting there. And so the use during the course of the night became so much that by the time I was arrested the next day, they took me over to uh, emergency and I was put into the intensive care unit because of multi multi-substance overdose. I had taken so many different drugs that uh, I was just about overdosed yeah. or was in a state of overdose, but I, I didn't realize it at the time. Wow. So when I finally came to, I was cuffed to the gurney yeah. that I was laying on and taken to, to jail. And so, Tim, this is it's a too, lot. too long a story. No, but. it's... <laughs> I'm, have a sip of water there for a second. Just listening in to David Peterson's our guest uh, today, just sharing uh, God's work in his life and been sharing about where, you know, grew up in the church and uh, at the same time it, you know, as a youth, it didn't quite go all the way in connecting his heart with God to, to the level of really knowing that God could be known to that level on a personal relationship and, and a day-by-day dependence on him for everything we need. Um, and so start exploring with other things and, and different types of drugs or different types of philosophies, uh, you know, to seek God in certain ways and led to drug use, which kind of dominated things for many, many years and affected, as you were describing earlier. So let's break for a minute. Just come back and see what happened next in David's story. Perhaps some light around the bend at the end of the tunnel, at the, around the curve. You listen to The Tim DeMoss Show. It's AM 560 WFIL. Thanks for tuning in to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast with AM560 WFIL and WFIL.com. 448 AM560 WFIL, WFIL.com is what you're listening to. It's Tim DeMoss. Thank you for listening in. The forecast the rest of the day on the cloudy side, dropping to 66 tonight. Tomorrow, cloudy early, some sunshine off and on during the day, maybe a shower or two. And uh, still staying on the humid side, 82 for the high. Thursday looks like a lot of clouds, few showers and thunder showers, high of 75. Uh, coming down the home stretch of the program today, something a little different, hearing the story of a listener to this radio station and a friend of our family, David Peterson's his name, local guy from Montgomery County, went to church as a young boy, grew up in a Christian home. But by the time he was 12 or 13, those initial roots had kind of dislodged a bit or perhaps not gone deep enough in the first place. And, uh, David wound up looking for God in many different arenas, including drugs, wound up in prison uh, where we were just chatting before the break. Uh, did that prove to be the turning point? Yeah. So, well, the the answer to your question is 
right, I'm right at that point where something really wonderful and dramatic happened in my life. And this is what I could consider truly my bottoming out was when I found myself in a, a solitary confinement um, in this little county jail up north in up north Michigan yeah. with nothing. My wife had gone. I had lost the house I was living in. My car was gone. All of my possessions ended up uh, in a sheriff's sale. So everything, the home that I was living in was sold at my my wife didn't get and she was in treatment or at this point I guess she was living uh, clean but not not in inpatient treatment anymore Mm -hmm. but so my kids were gone out of my life everything I had lost and I'm looking at a potential life sentence because in Michigan the use of a gun in the commission of a, a crime can get you life. Even though there were no bullets in the gun? Yes. Yep. In fact, it doesn't even have to be a real gun. If you stick your hand in your pocket and make the shape of a gun with your fingers and point it at somebody and rob them, it's the same. You can be charged with the same thing as an armed, that would be an armed robbery. Wow. Yeah. And these things I didn't know about. I thought the fact that there was no bullets in the gun would me a break it didn't at all the law makes no no uh provisions for that that's right yeah so i was looking at potential of of life and this is a third felony on my record which is also the three strikes thing was uh potentially could be used against me yeah. Although one of the felonies was kind of, well, it was kind of funky. They they jacked the charge around to make it a felony when really the the crime that I had committed, which was shoplifting, wasn't a felony, but they turned it into one. So, wow. But I knew I was looking at a long stretch of time, and the problem was I didn't have much of a memory of the incident at the time that it occurred, the, yeah. the robbery itself. And so my lawyer tried to plead me as uh, temporarily insane, which was, is a, a legal uh, state that you can be in, but the judge didn't accept that. And so it looked like I was going to be doing uh, maybe 20 years is what the the prosecutor was recommending. But because I didn't remember much, the trial or the pre-trial uh, took a long time, and I ended up in the county jail for a year just awaiting my trial. Wow. And they held me in solitary confinement the whole time. And I was in a little uh, seven-by-four maybe four and a half feet wide, a seven feet long cell, just a little closet with a camera on me the whole time, stripped down because uh, I, had, I had tried at one point to uh, end things uh, 
tried to commit suicide in there at a very low point. They'd stripped me of all my clothes, so I was down to just shorts and no blanket or sheet, just a mat that I was laying on, on concrete. And this was, well, this was seven months in that little closet. They had moved me there from solitary confinement to this place, which was uh, super solitary because it had a camera and they could watch me at all times. Wow. So seven months like that, Tim, and the only thing I was able to get in there was a Bible. It was there in that, that dank little closet, stripped down to nothing on the outside or the inside, that God allowed me to see myself as I truly was, this deceptive, living a lie person that I had become. It was so horrific. I don't really know how to describe this. But the best I can say is it was as though I saw myself laying there on the little mat that I had, and God gave me a revelation, so to speak. I guess it's the best way I can put it, a discernment to see me as he saw me mm. with all of my, my filth. I was looking at myself and was repulsed by myself to the point where I knew that if I was anybody else, I wouldn't want anything to do with me. And I cried out to God in that moment and said, God, I don't want to live any longer as this person. I do not want to be who I've been for the last 40-some years. And if I have to live another day as that person I want out. I can't go on. This is it. And it was a, not so much a prayer as a demand. <laughs> like, this was, this was it. I can't do this anymore. I'd like to say some great bolt of lightning happened and I was a changed person. But it didn't happen like that. What happened was that in about three or four days, I became aware for the first time that I haven't been thinking about obsessing like, like I always would about drugs or, or using them or longing for them. Mm. There was, that was just gone. And I didn't even realize it, like I said, for three or four days maybe. Just dawned on you that that's yes, what it happened, that, wow, that it wasn't happening. I haven't been thinking about this. So the days went on, and as they did... I just spent more and more time with the Lord, with the Lord. I mean, there was no one else. There was no one else that I could interact with. And so it was just an ongoing conversation of my spirit, interacting with God's spirit. Yeah. And so you can call it prayer. It started out as prayer, as petitioning God for this and that and making kind of promises and deals and stuff. But after a while, all that fell away and it just became the sweet communion between my maker and, and me. And that was really the turning point for me. Wow. So I ended up with a 12-year 
excuse me, a 12 to 22-year sentence, with the first 12 years being mandatory. I couldn't even see the parole board until the minimum, the 12-year was 12 years? Yes. That's crazy. Yeah. And so ended up going to prison, and it was then that I came to know my my wife uh, through a correspondence that we struck up through the magazine that she wrote for. World Magazine. Yeah. yeah. And Andre hasn't said a, a word this whole time. <laughs> she's supporting you, just hanging. Yeah, she's just... <laughs> but so you were there for 12, for, in, for 12 you, years. You did have a 12-year sentence. And yes. so God got, broke through on the in the beginning of those 12 years. Yes. And so during those 12 years, your faith... Was, was growing true, straight and true, kind of beautifully. Thing? Yes, beautifully. Uh, well, we are we are out of time. We did not really get to delve into another whole aspect of this, especially how you and Andre met, what the Lord has done since. So, uh, we're gonna need to continue this chat a bit tomorrow. Uh, also, I want to remind folks: if you or somebody you know could use prayer, whether it's something serious like what David was sharing about or anything else. We have a prayer center on our website. Uh, Go to WFIL.com. There's a blue bar across the top. You click the word more, then grow your faith, and then prayer center. It's open and available anytime at WFIL.com. We want people to know they're not alone, and we are glad to pray for you. So please take advantage of that. Uh, Speaking of which, going to step aside. Jim Maxim, Acts 413 Ministries, is going to pray now. And then at 5 o'clock, it's Truth for Life with Alice DeBeg on AM 560 WFIL. Have a great rest. Thanks for listening to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. Feel free to tune in to the full show each weekday afternoon from 4 to 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.